Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, May 6, 2015. Yeah, we will be doing our light episode, although we didn't, weren't able to do an episode yesterday. If you follow me on social media, then you, you know that we had a, a water pipe breakage thingy happen. Yeah, there was a, a contractor, there was noise, there was kind of an emergency situation. Yeah, who would have thought water could stop fighting for the bed? Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down and stop and open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to you know open up our Bible and use sound biblical exegesis to compare what uh, the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, authors, self-proclaimed prophets and prophetesses, you know, to compare what they're saying to what God's Word says using sound biblical exegesis, proper hermeneutics, to see if they're teaching the historic, biblical, orthodox Christian faith and sound biblical doctrine, or if they're twisting God's Word, deceiving people and teaching for shameful gain the things they ought not to be teaching. And unfortunately, it's the second one that comes up quite a bit. Now, part of the process, if you would, of learning sound biblical exegesis is, well, becoming familiar with God's Word in context from teachers who are rightly handling God's Word. And so uh, once a week, we have a light episode here at Fighting for the Faith. Oftentimes, it falls on Wednesday, and uh, we uh, will either turn the microphone over to somebody else or we'll listen to a lecture that I've given. And the idea here is, is by listening to these lectures, you become familiar with sound biblical doctrine, good exegesis, and things like that, and you are well-equipped at that point. We equipped against false teachers, equipped to teach sound doctrine, equipped to protect yourself and your family, things like that. Now, last week, uh, during our Wednesday episode, we played a lecture by Dr. Michael Horton on Sola Scriptura, and I wanted to go ahead and play one more good sermon, although it sounds like a lecture, but it's not, it's a sermon, uh, by Phil Johnson on the superiority of Scripture to kind of drive the point home regarding Sola Scriptura, and he's going to be exegeting his way through a portion of Psalm 119. So without any further ado, here is Phil Johnson and his sermon on the superiority of Scripture. Here we go. Psalm 19. The key section here on the sufficiency of Scripture are verses 7 through 11. That's where we'll home in. That's where we'll focus 
that is the definitive text on the superiority and sufficiency of Scripture. But we can't consider those verses in isolation this morning. In order to understand fully what the psalmist is saying, I want to take a broad look with you at the whole psalm. By the way, David is the author of this psalm. We'll cover the whole psalm, and by setting those key verses, verses 7 through 11, by setting them in their full context, I want to show you why that passage is so foundational to what we believe about Scripture. This is an expansive psalm about how God reveals Himself, and it features two main ways God has made Himself known. First, in verses 1 through 6, it says, God has revealed His glory in nature. That's what we talked about two weeks ago. And then in the second half of the psalm, David speaks of God's self-revelation in his word. And so I'm going to read the whole psalm. We'll look closely at those two stanzas. And as I read it, pay careful attention to the shift between stanzas at verse 7. That verse 7 is where stanza 2 starts. Here's the psalm. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy." Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether." More desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression." Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, lots of that is very familiar to you, I know. We even sing several songs that are drawn from that psalm. There are two parts to it, and each part focuses on a different aspect of divine revelation. Theologians typically label these general revelation and special revelation, and they're like two separate volumes of a single work, both written by the same author, both containing the same message, but each dealing with the message in a different way. And the theme is the glory of God. And I want you to keep that illustration in mind. Two books, same author, one consistent message. We're going to come back to that, that whole idea of two books, because I want to try to correct for you this morning a common misconception about the whole two-book analogy. But first, let's talk about those two means of divine revelation. General revelation shows us God's glory in a vivid display that, as we saw two weeks ago, is vivid display that's spread across the entire universe. 
can be seen in every dimension of creation and shows us the glory of God. Special revelation unveils for us the full panorama of redemptive truth as it is given to us in God's Word. And the psalmist is making a comparison and a contrast between those two kinds of revelation. Both nature and Scripture reveal God to us, but they do it in different ways. One is natural, the other supernatural. One is universal, and it's obvious to every creature. The other, in the words of 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10, contains what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. And that, of course, is speaking about the truth that is revealed and recorded for us in the Bible. Now, the scope of natural revelation is as vast as the universe itself. It extends to the furthest reaches of the stars and beyond, but it's also seen in the smallest molecule and in the structure of atoms and everything. So, as I said two weeks ago, it doesn't matter if you look into a telescope or into a microscope, you are confronted with in, an infinite number of evidences that all display the glory of God, His wisdom, His power, His skill as a creator, His love of beauty and diversity and complexity. All of this is shown to us in nature, and wherever you look in nature. Nature is a breathtaking and astonishing demonstration of divine glory, no matter what perspective you see it from, and no matter how narrow or how broad the range of your vision it's impressive beyond words in every dimension and every detail. The glory of God is constantly on display in vivid, intense, graphic detail, no matter where you look. That's just the absolute truth. And yet, the glory of God is even more clear, more impressive, more majestic, and more remarkable the way we see it in Scripture. Here's the point David wants us to take away from this psalm. This is the point he's making. Special revelation, that which is contained in propositional statements printed on paper and bound up in a single volume you can hold in your hand, special revelation is in every way superior to the sky-to-sky revelation of God in nature. The Bible's better than that. It shows the glory of God more clearly than that. And that's the theme and that's the major lesson of this psalm, that special revelation is superior. And so let's look at it in two points, which I'll give you here at the start. This is not a complex outline because our outline is the same as the outline of this psalm, and it's very simple, just two points. So it really ought to be pretty easy to organize your notes this morning. In point one, we'll consider natural revelation, the means by which God reveals his glory in the skies. And then in point that, that by the way, will cover the first six verses. Point two, then, we'll consider supernatural revelation, the means by which God reveals His grace in the Scriptures. And that will cover verses 7 through 14. So first things first, let's consider verses 1 through 6. This is natural revelation. God reveals His glory in the skies. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. This is one of the key passages in all of Scripture on natural revelation. And it affirms for us that all of nature is a great object lesson 
designed deliberately to show the glory and the faithfulness and the wisdom of our Creator in a vivid display that no one can miss. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I did that message two weeks ago and I've been working on this message and thinking this is really a, a wonderful and almost unfathomable truth. You, you, can't, you can't really, you'll never reach the end of thinking about this. God built into His creation a brilliant reflection of His glory so that when we see breathtaking scenes in nature or when we think about the world of living organisms that dwell in a single drop of pond water or whether we ponder any of the glories of the universe, our minds ought to go naturally to the glory of the Creator. And in fact, the only way you can look at the wonders of the universe and not be struck by the glory of the Creator is by deliberately suppressing the knowledge of God that's inborn in every human heart. God is so clearly revealed in His creation that people must be willfully blind to see all that He has made and turn away in unbelief or skepticism. That was the point of the message two weeks ago. But that is precisely what people do. They suppress that knowledge. They try to cloud that awareness that's inborn in them. And in fact, even you and I do that to some degree or another, and I'll show you that in a moment. But first, look at what the psalm is saying, and notice how clear and comprehensive and pervasive the revelation of God's glory in nature is. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky is a preacher. And what a mighty preacher it is. In every way, it, the sky is more diligent, more persistent, more far-reaching than any other preacher because it preaches at all times, in all tongues, and in all territories. And that's exactly what David says here. Pay special attention to verses 2 through 4. And let's take note of what he's saying about the universal scope of natural revelation, general revelation, the, the revelation of God in nature. First, he says, nature speaks at all times. Verse 2, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. He's making the point that nature constantly is speaking forth the glories of God. You can see it at night in the starry expanse of the heavens. You can see it in the daytime in the beauties of nature. From the whole world of microscopic marvels that swim in a droplet of water to the intricate beauties of a blooming flower to the awesome spectacles of the mountains and the oceans and, you know, Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon or the Sahara Desert or literally any place on earth. Everywhere you look, nature is filled with wonders that declare God's glory and His wisdom and His majesty and His immensity and His power. All of that is on display constantly. You know, we have a couple of astronaut friends, Barry Wilmore and Jeff Williams. Some of you have met Jeff because he's been here several times. Jeff's also been in space, I think, three times. Once on the space shuttle Atlantis, and he did two six-month stints in the International Space Station. So he's been in space for all combined more than a year of his life, and he's preparing for a third six-month stay up there next year. And he told me once that the opening verse of this psalm is the thought that continually runs through his head. And I think the same thing when I see the pictures he's taken. When you see those pictures and hear him describe the immense majesty of space and the beauty of this world, you can't help experiencing it just a little bit vicariously. I'd love to go up there. I wouldn't want to stay for six months. 
I'm not sure I could even sleep a single night in weightlessness, but weightlessness would be nice, wouldn't it? (laughs) And you and I pay for NASA's photography with our tax money. It's one of the few government projects I'm really thrilled to support because uh, they keep a large archive of high-def digital photos online that you can download for free. Uh, And I think Jeff actually holds the record of uh, taking more photographs than any other astronaut who's ever been up there. And you ought to look at some of those photos sometime and expand your brain about the glory of God in nature. Two things impress me. One is how close the Earth looks and how large it looks in pictures that are taken from the space station. It doesn't seem like that thing is far enough away to escape, you know, most of the Earth's gravitational pull. It's, it's in fact, 268 miles up there. That's the orbit, 268 miles away. That is shorter than the distance from here to San Jose. And so in all the photos that are pointed at Earth, the Earth looks almost like you could just reach out and touch it. I was asking Jeff, you know, he did these spacewalks. What if he threw a baseball at the Earth? I'd want to do something like that. He said I'd get kicked out of the astronaut program if I did. But anyway, when the camera is pointed away from the Earth, you get the opposite impression. One of the really astonishing things about outer space is the inconceivably enormous size of the universe and how small and relatively insignificant Earth is. In the scope of all the planets and everything, we're smaller than a grain of sand relative to all the beaches on the, on the Earth. It's that insignificant. And David says that in Psalm chapter 8, verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him? When I consider the stars and all that's out there, what is even this world? It's not really that big. And you know what? You can see equally awesome wonders wherever you look, if you pay attention. Ponder the complexity of a single insect or the number and diversity of the many stars and planets. Or as Darlene does almost every day, marvel at what a spectacular scene you have in the sunrise or the sunset. She loves to take pictures of the sunrise and put them on Facebook, and I'm always making fun of her for that. Because who wants to see pictures, you know? I like the real thing. But that's the point he's making here. Day to day and night to night, every single facet of nature is amazing beyond words. So amazing, you can't really capture it with a photograph. And nature, he says, speaks at all times, verse 2. But not only that, Second point, nature speaks in all languages. Verse 3, the heavens and the firmament declare the glory of God in a way no one can possibly miss. Verse 3, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. In other words, the language of natural revelation, though it's nonverbal, it's universal. Everybody understands it. No matter what language you speak, nature communicates its truths clearly. The same divine creator is revealed to the Cambridge scholar who's studying quantum physics as it is to the uncivilized tribesmen living in the deepest rainforest. All of them see the glory of nature with equal clarity, and the message is clear across every human language barrier and without any kind of translation. You can ignore it or you can try to suppress it, but you can't avoid it, and it doesn't need to be explained. It clearly reveals a superior power, and a superior intellect, and it clearly shows the limitless expanse of infinitude, which is something 
we could otherwise not even imagine or illustrate. And so nature speaks at all times in all languages. And third, nature speaks to all people, verses 4 through 6. Listen again to those verses. Verse 4, their voice goes throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. In other words, the truth that is available in nature is already being declared to the uttermost parts of the earth and beyond. No missionaries are necessary to carry natural revelation to remote areas. It's already there. No one can hide from or escape the truth that God reveals about himself in nature. The glory of God is like the sun, David says, reaches every place on earth. No one can claim ignorance. No one can say this truth was hidden. But here's the amazing thing. Despite the clarity the universality, the simplicity of general revelation, by itself, it is completely inadequate for salvation. No one ever comes to God because they see him revealed in nature. It doesn't happen. Did you ever wonder how so many scientists can devote their lives to the study of the marvels of creation and end up believing that the entire universe sprang into being by accident with no intelligent cause. How can a thinking person possibly even believe that? Do you sit there amazed, as I do, when, the, when you watch the National Geographic Channel or the Discovery Channel and you see all those programs that feature the fantastic details of God's creation and then listen to the announcer trying to explain how all of this came into being purely by random chance, without a plan, Without any intelligence, it just happened by accident. Seriously, it's utterly irrational and absurd to convince yourself that everything happened without a cause and without a reason. All the beauty, order, intricacy, diversity in nature, all of that, not to mention the interdependent species of life, the perfect balance of the solar system, and even intelligence itself. How can anyone possibly believe all of that happened spontaneously, without a cause, without a designer, without a plan, without any meaning? How can you believe that? Who could possibly believe that unless it's someone who is desperately and sinfully trying to suppress his every possible thought about God? And Scripture says that's exactly what's happening. It's the sinful tendency of all humanity to do just that, to suppress what we know about God, what's obvious about Him. People deliberately stifle their own consciences and silence reason itself and tell themselves that it's more rational to eliminate God from their thoughts. And that tendency, Scripture says, is universal. It's the principal sin of every fallen human mind. It's the wicked tendency from which Every other evil of humanity is hatched. Every wicked thing you can think of grows out of that tendency to try to suppress our knowledge of God so that we don't have to deal with our own consciences. And it's indescribably wicked to think that way. And everyone in the world is guilty of that sin at one time or another, and in some degree or another, we're all guilty of it. Left to ourselves, 
that is the course all of us would choose. And the Apostle Paul was very clear about that. He began his gospel presentation in the book of Romans by declaring the guilt of all humanity. That's his starting point. And he says there are no exceptions. And his case begins with an assertion in Romans 1 that all people are guilty first and foremost because they have willfully rejected truth about God that is evident on the very face of all creation. In fact, listen to this, Romans 1, 18 through 21. He says, "...the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's really the text we looked at two weeks ago. I don't mind reemphasizing it for you, but get the point. It's saying, nature reveals a God of glory and power, a God of order and infinite intelligence. His eternal power and Godhead, the text says, are perpetually on display in every single facet of nature. You can close your eyes to it, but it's still there in the very air you breathe. In nature, we discern that God is a God of law and beauty and wisdom and goodness, greatness, power, might, excellence, and it is the rejection of those very truths about God that makes every person culpable for sin, even if you've never heard anything about the Scriptures, even if they've never heard the Gospel. They're still culpable for their sin because what can be known about God, these truths, not everything that can be known about God, but things that can be known about God are evident in nature and they suppress it. And furthermore, the rejection of natural revelation is the first step in the tragic decline that Paul sort of graphically maps out there in Romans 1. And listen to what he said about natural humanity in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. In other words, fallen people by nature are so spiritually obtuse, so insensitive to anything that is heavenly because they've suppressed what's obvious about God. They are so undiscerning, so dull to the things of God, so utterly dead in their trespasses and sins that we would all miss the truth about God entirely if He did not supernaturally intervene and reveal Himself to us by some means other than nature. And, you know, whenever I preach on this subject, people invariably ask, someone will invariably ask, are are you sure there are no exceptions to this? Isn't it possible that people somewhere cut off from the truth of the gospel will nevertheless turn to God and embrace Him because they see the light of truth revealed in nature? And I realize there are stories about people who somehow hear the truth in their dreams or see it in the discern it from the constellations or whatever. And that those ideas are becoming increasingly more popular these days because we see the gospel getting less and less publicity. And people want to explain what's happening in this world 
We don't want to believe it can be as bad as it is. But Scripture is clear. No one is saved by general revelation alone. The truth of nature saves no one. Only the message of Christ can do that. Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? And then two verses later, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And then immediately after saying that, Paul himself raises the issue of general revelation from right here in Psalm 19. He quotes this text in the very next verse, Romans 10, 18. But I ask, he says, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? And then the answer he gives basically is that they reject what they do understand. And that is the universal problem of all humanity. What Paul says there is true not only of Israel, but of all humanity. General revelation enough alone is, is enough to condemn those who reject it. But make no mistake, everyone rejects it. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, the balance of today's sermon on the superiority of Scripture. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Doesn't it bother you how some Christians are quick to argue about theology? Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Wait a minute. Did you catch the double standard in that statement? What double standard? You just said that Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Yeah, so what? Do you believe that statement is accurate? Of course I do. So if you think that statement is accurate, would it be safe to say that you think that statement is correct? Of course I think it's correct. That goes without saying. If I think the statement is accurate I obviously think it's correct. I wouldn't have made the statement if I didn't think it was accurate or correct. Did you notice that your statement was making a theological point? Well, yes, I suppose it was. So let me see if I've correctly understood the statement you made. Okay. You said it bothers you how some Christians are quick to argue theology. Yes, 
That's what I said. It sounds like you're saying that it bothers you that some Christians argue theology in order to prove that something that you believe or have been taught is not correct? Well, um, yes, I guess that's what I was saying. But then you made a theological argument to try to prove that Christians shouldn't argue theology. Well, um, yes. So, on the one hand you say that it bothers you that Christians argue theology in order to prove your theology wrong but then on the other hand, you turned right around and employed a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong, that's cheating, you can't use a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong, that's like using logic to prove that logical argumentation is wrong or using a mathematical equation to prove that using math is wrong. I knew it. Knew what? You're one of those people. What do you mean by those people? You're one of those people who loves theology more than people. What on earth are you talking about? You're a close-minded blogger who lives in her mother's basement and spends every day in her pajamas on a beanbag typing away on a laptop while eating cheetahs and drinking Mountain Dew. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that God's word is sufficient and that you don't need so-called prophets, prophetesses, and people claiming to have words of knowledge and stuff like that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That's a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's sermon on the superiority of Scripture. Here again is Phil Johnson. The truth revealed in nature is simply not enough to save. Only the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Unless the truth of Scripture, and specifically the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, unless that reaches sinners, there's no hope of salvation. Verse 17, Again, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word, not through nature. And David, in essence, is saying the very same thing right here in our psalm. This is absolutely the the main point he's making. He's celebrating the necessity and the sufficiency and the superiority of the Scriptures, the written Word of God. This is a psalm extolling special revelation. It begins with general revelation, but that's not the point. It's about special revelation, or as we're calling it here, supernatural revelation. And that brings us to point two, verse seven, supernatural revelation, how God reveals his grace through the scriptures. And this is the structure of this psalm. Verses one through six 
say, God's sovereign glory is revealed in the skies. Verses 7 through 14 are teaching that God's saving grace is revealed only in the Scriptures. And that's why the Scriptures are so utterly superior to the revelation of God we see in nature. Now, understand, David is in no way denigrating the wonder and the glory of natural revelation. This in no way diminishes the grandeur and the majesty of what we see in nature. But what this does is elevate Scripture to an even higher level. My astronaut friends have the best perspective on general revelation of anyone I can imagine. Think how amazing it would be to walk in space and see the entire earth floating in space at your feet and the vast expanse of the heavens overhead, or, you know, vice versa, because after all, you'd be weightless, you know, so maybe the earth is at your head and the stars are at your feet. I don't know. From my perspective, that weightlessness would be the most amazing part. And yet, what David is saying is that the glories of Scripture are even greater than all the wonders of nature combined. Scripture is more sublime, more full of wonders, more breathtaking in its splendor and brilliance than all the infinite wonders of nature combined. Between the two kinds of revelation, natural revelation and supernatural revelation, the book of nature and the book of Scripture, the written Word of God is the superior form of revelation. And I want to get back to this analogy of two books because it's an analogy that is much abused nowadays. If you heard this argument, you know, God gave us two books, the book of Scripture and the book of nature, and both are equally trustworthy. There is no possibility of a contradiction between them, so we should give equal weight to both. That's the argument. That's the rationale given today by people who want to, say, adapt our interpretation of Genesis to the prevailing opinions of the scientific community. And the argument they're making may seem safe and reasonable. It is true up to the last sentence of that statement I just gave you. Natural and supernatural revelation are equally trustworthy. They are in perfect agreement. And yes, it is the same God who speaks in both creation and the Bible, and he cannot deny himself, 2 Timothy 2.13. He never lies, according to Titus 1.2 and a half a dozen more texts. So it's quite true that there is no possibility of any contradiction between Scripture and natural revelation as long as both are properly understood. But there is this major fallacy built into the popular misconception that, you know, we have these two books of Revelation and and they're equal in every way. Nature and Scripture are not equally sufficient. They do not speak with equal power. They cannot communicate with equal clarity, and therefore they should not be given equal weight. In practice, those who like to argue that nature and Scripture speak with equal authority, they're typically saying that they believe, you know, scientific opinion ought to be the judge and the arbiter of how we read Scripture. That's what they really mean. You know, it never seems to work the other way around. And what David is saying specifically is it ought to work the other way around. Scripture ought to be the arbiter of how we read nature, how we understand the truth that's revealed to us in nature. That's explained more fully by Scripture. And what this misapplication of the two books analogy does is it keeps the very notion of truth in constant flux because here's how it works in practice. Some esteemed 
astrophysicist or paleontologist adds a few billion years to his estimate of the age of the earth, and the evangelical two-book exegetes feel obliged to adapt their interpretations of Genesis to accommodate whatever the latest theory is, and it keeps changing. See, the idea of two volumes in one work, that's an analogy. That is not a canon of our faith. And the analogy is helpful only as we bear in mind that God did not literally give us two books. He gave us one book together with an unimaginably grand display of divine glory. That's the point of our psalm. Nature is a perpetual exhibition of divine glory that transcends language and location, but it does convey truth about the glory of God, but the truth it conveys is not explicit. It's, at least it's not explicit truth with the same high-definition clarity and detail as Scripture. God's written Word is full of clear propositions, and precise doctrines, careful explanations, eyewitness testimonies, and definitive precepts. Nature, by contrast, communicates non-verbally. That's the whole point of verse 3 in our psalm. Plus, the Word of God, the Scriptures, are eternal. Everything in nature will one day pass away, everything, this entire universe. In the words of Hebrews 1, verses 11 and 12, they will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. Christ will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. Jesus himself emphatically declared the primacy of special revelation over general revelation in exactly those terms. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's Luke 21, 33. And think of it like this. Creation is a product of God's Word. God spoke this universe into existence. Creation was produced by the Word of God. The two are not equally ultimate. And that truth is actually the starting point of genuine faith, according to Hebrews eleven three. This is a very important issue. Hebrews eleven three. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And remember, according to Romans 10, faith comes from hearing the Word, not from studying nature. Scripture explains creation, not vice versa. Nature drives us to Scripture for a true understanding of God and His ways, and it is the Word of God that gives birth to faith. Nature can't do that. We're born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. That's 1 Peter 1.23. Or, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's Hebrews 4.12. And think about that. Nature, as vast and spectacular it is, does not have that power. It can't rebuke us, it can't, it can't discern our thoughts, it can't tell us the right way to go. But here is the principal difference between the two kinds of revelation, and this is the point of our psalm. Scripture is a sufficient source of knowledge about God. Nature is not. Scripture contains everything necessary for spiritual life and godliness. And in fact, many of the truths most vital to fallen humanity, most vital to our salvation... Those truths are revealed only in Scripture. And that includes 
the identity of the one true God, the triunity of the Godhead, the deity of Christ, His one sacrifice for sin forever, His exclusivity as the sole mediator between God and men, the doctrine of justification by faith, and a host of related gospel truths cannot possibly be discerned from nature. They're only in Scripture. Scripture alone can make us wise unto salvation. You can't say that about general revelation. And Scripture declares itself to be sufficient, not only here in Psalm 19, but also in 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, which I think we did a message on that a year or two ago. Look that up, because it's also about the sufficiency of Scripture, where it says Scripture is sufficient to make you wise unto salvation, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. It equips us for every good work. You can't say that again about nature, but Scripture equips us for every good work, and that includes everything that pertains to life and godliness. And furthermore, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6 says that we are not to go beyond what is written, particularly not when it comes to the interpretation of Scripture and the formulation of doctrine. Bottom line, the two-equal book argument, as you hear it in popular discourse today, is a de facto denial of the sufficiency of Scripture. Consider this. If you think Scripture can't really be accurately interpreted except through the grid of current scientific opinion, then that means prior to the current generation... No one in the history of the church ever correctly understood even the opening verse, the first and foundational statement of Scripture. That means if the two-book theory is true, Scripture isn't clear enough for simple people to understand correctly the message. And Scripture itself says that's not true. It is clear enough. That's the doctrine known as the perspicuity of Scripture, the truth that Scripture is neither too complex nor too mysterious for ordinary minds to grasp its true meaning. It's clear enough without any interpretation or or information that comes from modern scientific discoveries. And so this claim that general and special revelation are equal in every sense is simply an untenable claim. It contradicts Scripture. To say that general and special revelation should be given equal weight is a recipe for error. Because as wonderful as it is, natural revelation cannot give us full knowledge of God. That's why God has given us His Word, which reveals and explains more clearly than all of nature God's glory and His grace and the way of salvation. And not only that, Scripture reveals God's grace and salvation in a way that makes it simple, because it is simple. It's the gospel. And as I said, that's really the point of this psalm. It's not only about the sufficiency of Scripture, it's also about the superiority of Scripture. We extol the glory of God when we see it displayed in nature, but as wonderful as the revelation of God in nature is, as breathtaking as that is, Scripture gives us an even clearer view of God's glory. Because what Scripture gives us is unvarnished truth. And that truth is glorious. That's why David says he loves Scripture more than nature. Look at verse 10. Scripture is more valuable to David than the most valuable thing nature could give him, gold. It's sweeter to him than the sweetest thing nature offers, honey dripping fresh from the honeycomb. This is really an amazing truth. And don't miss it. 
And don't forget it, the next time you visit the Grand Canyon or, or watch a spectacular sunset or fly over the fjordlands in New Zealand or, or watch glaciers calving in Alaska or step out of the space shuttle from outer space, I don't think any of us are going to do that. So forget that. But the next time anything in nature gets your breath taken away, while you are pondering the glory of God and the fantastic way He has put that glory on display for us to see in creation, I want you to think of this. Scripture does an even better job of putting God's glory on display. The Bible shows us an even more impressive array of divine attributes. The truth of Scripture, if you will receive it, is even more breathtaking than the most amazing scenes in all of nature and the universe. And that's the point of this psalm. Verses 7 through 10 exalt the absolute sufficiency and superiority of Scripture, and they show why the Bible gives us a better understanding of the glory of God than all of nature. And since John MacArthur has so fully expounded these verses, both in print and on tape, I'm not going to try to cover every detail here. Time wouldn't permit it anyway, even if we took six weeks to do it. But I do want to cover these verses. And have you noticed what David is saying about Scripture? There are six statements here. Each one contains three elements. There are six titles for Scripture. It's called Law and Testimony in verse 7. It's called Precepts and Commandment in verse 8. It's called Fear and Rules in verse 9. Those are all titles for Scripture because this is classic Hebrew parallelism. These words are used in parallel statements to repeat the truth. And they're all talking about Scripture. There are six characteristics of Scripture, again, two in each verse. It's perfect, it is sure, it is right, it is pure, it is clean, and it's true. And then there are six benefits of Scripture. It revives the soul, it makes wise the simple, it rejoices the heart, it enlightens the eyes, it endures forever, and it's righteous altogether. And notice this as well. There are six occurrences of the covenant name of Yahweh, translated in the phrase, of the Lord. Six times we're reminded that the source of special revelation is God Himself. So the number six is all woven into this poetry. And another way of saying all of that is this. This short passage gives us six descriptive titles of the Word of God, six qualities of the Word of God, six divine effects of the Word of God. And the parallelism of Hebrew poetry here highlights the names and the nature and the effects of Scripture. That's what he's writing about. And all of these expressions, you have to put them all together. You can't, you can't consider them in isolation from one another. When you put them all together combined, they show the utter comprehensiveness of biblical sufficiency. And the reasons why, these are the reasons why Scripture is absolutely superior as a witness and a testimony to the glory of God. Now, why couldn't God reveal the way of salvation in nature? Well, the reason is simple. Our sin has so alienated us from God that we could not possibly know Him at all unless He supernaturally revealed Himself to us. That was the most immediate and dramatic effect of Adam's sin. Although Adam had walked with God and fellowshiped with Him face to face, Sin changed that relationship, and Adam went into hiding. And then he was expelled from the garden, from the presence of the Holy, of Holy God and the Holy Spirit, 
He had no more communion with God. Ever since the fall, all humanity has had to hide from God in unholy terror. As sinners, we're unable to love God. We're unable to enjoy His presence, and therefore we're unable to know Him in a personal way. Left to ourselves, we couldn't do any of those things. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8 say that very thing. For the mind that is set on the flesh, and it's describing every unregenerate mind, every unsaved person, is hostile to God, for his mind does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's the essence of what it means to be spiritually dead. And that's why we need supernatural revelation and the supernatural power of God's grace in order to be saved. He, he has to draw us to him or we would never come because we are spiritually dead, left to nature alone. And this is one of the lessons nature itself teaches, left to nature alone, we would be without hope eternally because our very nature is so corrupted and so defiled with sin that what we're worthy of left to ourselves is only wrath and destruction. And that's why the religion of the Scriptures is from beginning to end a supernatural religion. Although many misguided souls have tried, there is no way to divest Christianity of the supernatural element and still call it Christianity. At the heart of our faith is a conviction that our transcendent God has intervened to save us. He has personally and authoritatively interjected himself into the course of human events. He's overruled nature itself in order to gain the salvation of men and women who otherwise would be lost. And that truth, including the way of salvation in Christ, could only be made known to us by supernatural means, by special prophetic revelation, and that is what we have in Scripture. Scripture is unique. According to our passage, it's perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. And Jesus adds to that, it's eternal. It will not pass away. You think about what all of this is saying. Since the curse of sin ruined the universe, nothing in nature is sure, right, pure, clean, and true. Nothing in nature is, but Scripture is all of those things. Scripture is sufficient. Notice, it converts the soul, it makes us wise, it gives us joy, it enlightens the eyes. That covers every spiritual need exhaustively. It's another way of saying what that text in 2 Timothy 3 says, that Scripture is able to make us wise unto salvation and then to equip us for every good work afterward, so that there's no need for any other spiritual resource beyond what we find in Scripture. We don't need private revelations. We don't need God to speak to us in our dreams. He's given us everything we need to hear in Scripture. And what David is writing here is a sweeping affirmation that the Bible contains and explains everything that is essential for life and godliness. And if that's true, and it is, then it's folly for anyone to try to supplement divine truth by looking elsewhere for truth to advance our spiritual growth. You know, people read books on, you know, business management and success and all, and try to apply that to the spiritual life of the church or their own spiritual growth. We hear constantly about dreams and visions and private prophecies and spirit-directed impulses and words of knowledge and whatnot. 
There's no warrant anywhere in Scripture for us to pursue those things. But when it comes to spiritual truth, truth about God, redemptive truth, and all other matters pertaining to life and godliness, all of the truth we need is revealed to us in the Bible. The Bible alone is perfect, sure, right, clean, true, and righteous. You can't say that about anything else. Now, before we wrap this up, look at a few questions people often ask about the sufficiency of Scripture. These are the kinds of questions I frequently get. If Scripture is perfectly sufficient, then why did God reveal Himself in nature at all? Do do general and special revelation say different things? Does natural revelation tell us any essential truth about God that is not revealed in Scripture? And the answer is, no, not really. Scripture explains what we see in nature. It's more precise, it's more full, it's more complete, it's more clear. You know, Thomas Aquinas famously devised a whole system of natural theology that he began with principles drawn from nature. That was his theory that because God reveals himself in nature, we ought to be able to construct a natural theology from nature. And, you know, ever since the time of Thomas Aquinas, the concept of natural theology has been abused by people who want to twist nature to prove whatever they want. That's the strategy behind the two equal books argument. They're saying that, you know, if nature is a form of revelation, then the observations of scientists should have equal authority with the teachings of Scripture. And in fact, this argument goes much further than just Genesis and our belief about creation. Some use that same argument as a reason to try to integrate psychotherapy and, you know, psychology with Scripture in counseling, and you know what a disaster that has been for the spiritual life of the church. Some give this natural theology argument as a reason for ordaining women as pastors. Still others use it to justify almost any and every idea that secular academicians and unbelieving pundits might say is true or politically correct. It's one of the main reasons such large segments of the visible churches are constantly chasing whatever is current and popular and politically correct. And you hear people sometimes say, all truth is God's truth. And let me give you a tip that might help you as you try to be discerning and wise. That statement, all truth is God's truth, is true enough, but it's really not of any help whatsoever in determining whether a specific idea is true or not. It's also usually when you hear that statement, it is a red flag letting you know that you're about to hear something that could never be established or confirmed by God's Word. And if you point that out, the person person making the claim will invariably try to make the argument that natural revelation is just as good as special revelation. If that happens to you, show that person this passage, because David is explicitly saying that special revelation is better. Scripture is better. It's more complete, more perfect, more authoritative, more perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true than all the revelation that's given to us in nature. As marvelous as nature is, it cannot be equated with Scripture. Scripture, not nature, but Scripture is the starting point and the final test of all truth. Nature can both illustrate and give evidence of the truth about God that we find in Scripture, but nature can't reveal 
anything that's essential that we don't find in Scripture. can't add anything to the revelation of Scripture. Because if it could, think about this, if there could be a truth in nature that's not found in Scripture, you could only get through nature, then David could never say that the law of the Lord is perfect. And furthermore, nature, interpreted correctly, always agrees with Scripture. Scripture explains nature, not the other way around. But Scripture explains nature because it speaks with more clarity, more power, more authority. Scripture is more complete and more specific. Scripture alone can give us the truth we need to be saved, and therefore we ought to cherish God's Word and esteem it more highly than all the treasures in the universe. That's exactly what our passage means when it says this about the Scriptures, "...more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold." sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Now, notice in closing, because we really haven't covered the whole psalm yet, but I have to close. Notice what else Scripture can do that nature is powerless to do. It rebukes and restrains our sin, especially the sins of our hearts, you know, presumptuous sins and secret sins and those sins that occur only in our minds, verses 11 through 13. Moreover, David says, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, and then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. We have time only to point out a couple of things in those verses. Notice, first of all, verse 11, there is great reward in keeping the law. That doesn't merely promise a reward for keeping the precepts of Scripture. It says there's great reward in the act of obedience itself. That's true. The joy and the blessedness and the satisfaction of keeping God's Word is great reward in and of itself. And second, notice how David is concerned about secret and presumptuous sins. That, I believe, is the distinctive mark of genuine love for the Word of God. It's the very opposite of the religion of the Pharisees, you know, who were only concerned really about what could be seen by other men. And they made a pretense of loving the Word of God, but they not only nullified God's Word by adding their own traditions, they also showed utter contempt for the Word of God by what they did in secret. David's prayer reflects the very opposite spirit, and it ought to be our prayer as well. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's the spirit of a heart that has seen the glory and the grace of God in Scripture. The view of God's glory in nature can reduce us to a kind of silent, inexpressible awe, but the view of God's glory in His Word is what it takes to make us truly men and women after God's own heart. And may we seek the vision of that greater glory in God's Word and learn to love the Word of God and treasure the Word of God the way we should above all the riches of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for the dullness of heart that causes us not to see and appreciate the truth your creation holds before us at all times. Forgive us even more than that for the dullness of heart that causes us not to value and Appreciate your glory as it's revealed to us in your word. We thank you for the grace that removes our blindness and grants us light through the scriptures. And may we love and treasure your word above all things. May we
learn to be obedient to it, as David describes here. May we hide your word in our hearts so that by its power we might be conformed to the image of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>